So speaking of education, I, um, I, I'm coming at this subject at this field from a very outsider's point of view. And I'm, I'm learning a lot. Um, and I'm learning some things that are conflicting with the current narrative that uh, of vision therapy. So for example, I, was, I ran across some, uh, a research article that I can share with you later um, from the American P- Pediatrics Association. Um, it's an article from 2007 um, or a research report they, they put out in 2007. And it was basically completely just saying that vision therapy doesn't work and it is suicide. Actually, Chris, just so you know, uh-huh. that that paper, that was not the initial version. That's probably at least version four or five. And okay. that paper has been surfacing with variations. Um, <laughs> the addition of, say, syntonics, the addition of this or that uh, 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 coming in. And um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hit piece. Um, uh, it's a sl- it's almost a slander piece against the profession, uh, and um, I, most of that, Chris. I know you weren't done with your question, but but most of that comes from people who simply don't know. They don't understand. And if you look at almost any field, you look at religion, you look at that type of thing. What you get are people who don't know who simply immediately have to lash out. And that piece in particular is something, uh, it is like that. Wow. Uh, and, and we've just had to deal with it. There have been white papers against it, rebuttals against it. So uh, you don't have to send it to me. I know it. <laughs> and I can send you, if you like, the white papers and the rebuttals uh, against it. That, um, yeah, that would be great. Also sh- I can also share with you in different parts of the world these things pop up as well. Yeah. Uh, there was a piece by, in 2009 in the UK by Brandon Barrett. Uh, and in a very similar vein, I can tell you right now, in fact, yesterday I finished editing a counter or white paper uh, on behalf of the Australasian College of Behavioral Optometry. Uh, because that paper, the 2009 Barrett paper, was used in Australia as a way to block specifically behavioral optometry from having access into some uh, education and teaching programs uh, by ophthalmology, who simply doesn't understand what we do. And and I, I think it's just that reaction. Dr. Harris, let's be blunt here. Is this about money? Is is this about is this about uh, people feeling threatened uh, for their wallet here? Or are is this uh, is this something that's happening because of, of business decisions or part of it? Uh, what do you what do you think of why, why is this? I mean, it's hard enough for a field to grow by itself organically. Then you have to add in the all those other obstacles. It's like you know, it just it just doesn't make sense. Can you help me make sense of it? Yeah. So. It's fear of loss of money because of scope of practice. But let me share with you, let, let's, let's go back to something different, and, mm-hmm. and I think I'll make a parallel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, way back when soft contact lenses uh, were first coming out, okay, way before you were born, but soft contact lenses were, were coming out. And uh, a company, we don't have to hit on that company, but a company made a decision that they would sell... Uh, at a lower and lower prices on quantity. So some big entities, commercial entities, would buy uh, in huge quantity, and even though they were distributing to multiple stores, right, the, the big entity that purchased 
um, got this incredible low price. So we optometrists were buying at the one price, and they were buying at the 10000 price. I just made up a number, but I think you get the idea. And we started to see contacts being sold in commercial establishments for less money than it cost us to buy them, okay? And we were like, that company, and it's going us out of business, and blah, 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 blah. And here's what happened. The people got the cheap, cheap contact lenses. It got them over the hump of, oh, try it. They tried it. Because the place that was selling it for some couldn't afford to spend time, right? It got them over, but they had problems, and they realized, oh, I've got to go to my professional, right? And in actual fact, this cheap thing that we thought, oh, it threatens, it's going to ruin, what it did was actually, in the end, it extended uh, the scope, the number of people who wore contact lenses and may have been responsible for that hockey stick growth occurring that nobody ever actually thought was going to happen. So let's back up here. Ophthalmology feels massively threatened by any expansion of the scope of practice of the profession of optometry. So we fought the battle um, over a number of years with diagnostic pharmaceutical agents. Um, the eye drops we used to say measure the eye pressure to desensitize the cornea. I remember in Maryland, Maryland, that's where I was practicing in the Baltimore area. We were the last state, the laughing stock of the profession. Because we were the last state to get authorized to use diagnostic pharmaceutical agents. And I remember, it took us 13 years in our legislature, and I remember the ophthalmologist there with this little bottle of uh, paracaine. Uh, the topical anesthetic saying um, uh, if you let optometrists use this they will kill people um, and it's like they were using it in 14 other states and that didn't happen wow. so yeah so you just it, that kind of thing and then it happened with um, uh, therapeutic agents and then it happened with so I think the bottom line is they feel threatened but there's no basis for it because I'm not going to do surgery. The fact that I can do better <laughs> um, treatment of more disorders and help people attain a higher level of function in life, it's not going to change the amount of ophthalmology that's new. I mean, there is a fixed amount of eye disease, and it's probably about 5% of the whole eye care field or eye care market, if you will. We still need wonderful trained medical surgeons. Now, here's a little bit of your problem. When I went to optometry school, so we're back a ways, okay? We used to say 20% of the ophthalmologists were doing 80% of the surgery. So, so 20, think about 20, that. 20% Few of them. 20%. Uh-huh. We're doing 80% surgeries. We're doing 80%. Yes. So... What that means is a few people who were very good at surgery were doing a lot of surgery. Wow. Right? Yeah. What do the other 80% do? Yeah. Well, they did eye exams and they had boutiques and they sold eyeglasses. So, in actual fact, there were quite a few who were not, they were trained to be surgeons, but they were not doing a lot of surgery. What I've heard that shifted to 10% of the ophthalmologists are doing 90% of the surgery. 
So the surgeons who are better at being the really great surgeons are getting more and more of the surgery work. Uh, and it's, it's, it's almost the, if you study at all, um, uh, com- complexity theory or um, uh, this kind of thing, it's sensitive dependence on initial conditions or the butterfly effect. Them that's got gets more. Okay, so uh, you see that, and I think that's part of where it happens, that those who are not really concentrating in their training area, which is surgery and the medical management of eye disease, right, like glaucoma, like diabetes, now that optometry has moved into that, um, they're being squeezed more and more. So I think there is a natural reaction that anything that they don't understand must be fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, fear of change, uh, even if that thing That's- might help them have more more patience and, and help more people. Um, well, look, just just 3D movies, right? When uh-huh. 3D movies came out, there were a number of people that would go and go, okay, I can't stand this, and I don't like how it feels. And it's like, oh, that's going to be horrible. And it's like, no, it's actually maybe going to help people who have visual problems be identified and get to an eye professional. Yeah. I want to, so, so <laughs> that's, so let's, uh, let's move on because I have another question. I, I, I want to get a better, um, a better feel for what the overall picture looks like for uh, vision therapy and, and how I want to, you know, try to frame that or how I want to try to see, see it through is the, from the lens of um, economics. Um, you know, vision ailments, uh, from what I've read, uh, are, are, are suffered by 20% of the population um, to, to some degree. They're on the spectrum. And, and so my question is, you know, what is the cost on an economy um, for 20% of your population to not be working as efficiently as they should? You know, are there numbers out there that, can, that, that, that quantify the, the damage, the impact that that has? Well, let's look at a microscopic part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look all the way back to the work I did on learning-related visual problems, okay? So let's look at a school system, and let's look at the cost to government to provide for children who have learning problems, okay? It's a very it's a subset of this, but we do use the number 20 percentile. We tend to think it's about 23 to 25 of the general population, but it's about 93%, Chris, of those who are identified who need special help in school, okay? Wow. So we have a huge need there. Now, let's look at, these are old numbers, and I, I publish this, um, but these are old numbers. The cost to an, a school system once they identify that a, um, a student has special needs and they're going to put them into special education, right? Uh, under the old public law 94142, they've fallen two years behind, so they get their individual uh, educational program, their IEP written, and now they're in special education. It costs, and this is generally shared, one-third local government, one-third state government, and one-third fed approximately $8,000 extra now goes to the education of that student, okay? So let's imagine that that child is, uh, and most of them, once they're into special education, remain there through uh, their graduation from high school or leaving high school, right? So 
let's now look at that and let's say that um, the and when I was in Baltimore City we knew that we had approximately 12% that were going into special education um, but let's just look at, at, at some children okay let's take a hundred kids let's take those 12 okay and let's take eight thousand dollars we'll say they're identified in third or fourth grade and maybe the average is they drop out at tenth grade so let's take seven years work so seven times eight fifty six thousand dollars okay um per those 12 kids so you can do fifty six thousand times twelve i'm not going to do that now but you can get in the order of we're a little over half a million dollars okay mm-hmm. now that for those 12 kids and people will just go, what? It's like, eh, yeah, that's where some of your tax dollars are going. Now, if we put into the school system, we put a vision therapy program, what would it cost? First of all, if I took them out and sent them to a private practice, we know in uh, $2016, you're looking at approximately between four dollars and $5,000 a kid to treat them. Okay? That's a one-time cost. What I did, Chris, in the article I published is I looked at what would the cost be if I provided it in the school as part of the school day. And what it turns out is I could pay an optometrist better than um, what they're being paid to work in, say, a commercial environment. And I can pay the special ed teachers that I retrain as vision therapists, I can pay them 20% higher than the best paid special education teacher. And I can still now deliver the vision therapy to those kids at one third the cost. So let's just round it off and say it's gonna cost me 2,000, okay, per kid. So I spend $24,000 one time to treat these 12 kids. Now I'm not perfect. Let's just say 50% of them now can go back to a regular classroom. Let's say I fail on 50%. I know I'm not going to. But you just look at the numbers that then spending that $12,000 on those six kids is going to save a quarter million dollars. Wow. That's a 10 to 1 to 11 to 1 return on the investment. And I think we will get an unbelievable change uh, and see change in terms of that. But now the paradigm shift that you're asking. Mm-hmm. Um and we're not talking ambiopian strabismus or anything like that. We're just talking basic learning-related visual problems. Um, we can... And now, what about the performance of that school district? What about the... Okay? What about the change long-term in productivity in the United States? What about the decrease in the number of um, uh, juvenile delinquency and eventually criminals, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. If they don't... because I did a study, and others have done studies that find this same 93 to 94% failure on our vision tests, even though they have most of them have 20-20 visual acuity, if you look at juvenile delinquents, if you look at the population of criminals. So we can make an incredible societal change, but we don't have enough optometrists doing this kind of work, uh, and it's going to take a a pioneer, a visionary to go out there and start this education-based uh, uh, vision therapy. 
it's it's been started. Uh, there was a program in Michigan that was incredibly effective, uh, and um, these programs need to expand over time and make a massive sea change in terms of uh, our society. So there's some really basic numbers that I think I can demonstrate easily a 10 to 11 to 1 return on investment just in training learning-related visual problems. That's 20%. Let's use your number of children in the educational system. Let's look at 93% the hit on special education. Uh, um, the 93% of those kids who are getting special education have a primary visual problem that's causing them to have that that need for the education. So, so there's currently around three million people in jail in America today. Around that number, what are do you have an estimation, a guesstimation for what is the number of people currently in jail that is basically that kid that didn't get the proper vision therapy testing and it well, just if ended you, up falling through the cracks. Three, yeah, if you say three million, I'm going to say two point seven million. There's two point seven million people in a cage, and it's all because they they ended up in this domino effect sort of life. Not setting. not all. Now now there was early work by Dr. David Dzik and Dr. Stanley Casino that showed there are multiple factors, right? Wow. So yeah, you have three hundred thousand that. They got their wires crossed. They're, you know, and then there's the gang-related and the other stuff. But, but you know, there are people, there are these wonderful stories of people that grow up in gang areas and other stuff who still, they, they love books, they read, they, okay? And it's not just I'm going to be the new basketball star, I'm going to be the new whatever, um, and, and that unrealistic view. I mean, I, I see it in our inner city population come in. Here's a kid with a limp who's medium size, and it's like, I'm going to be in the NBA. And it's like, uh, I don't think so. But I can't dash that dream. I mean, you know, Muggsy Bogues made it and four foot something. No, I never said four foot. But, um, you know, you don't need a whole lot of size and that kind of stuff. But but there's not that many NBA superstars. And, and we've got to make sure our children have the skills and tools necessary to learn. And far too many don't, 90-something percent. Now, just because you don't have those abilities, right? There's a lot more, Chris, if we look at all students in the United States and the percentage that actually go to crime. So they also have to have this learning-related visual problem thing, the tracking problems, eye-teaming, visual focusing problems. But there needs to then be... Um, a broken home, um, a drug situation around, um, a gang situation. So there's got to be other things that force them into the yeah. types of life of crime. You know, it just... Um, yeah, I'm trying to put myself in the in the shoes of, of a kid like that, and I just you know having some and and just you know not having someone adequately diagnose me, and everyone around me tells me I'm dumb because I can't read as fast as everybody else. So that becomes a self reinforcing sort of prophecy, and so I guess I'm dumb. dumb so I'm just gonna and lazy. Dumb. And yeah, and dumb. lazy. And, and lazy. 
And so, and so what are you left with? You, you have someone with low self-esteem going into a society not ready at all to tackle it. And what are you left with, I guess? But who has generally high intellect, good capabilities, mm-hmm. and activity levels, high activity levels, who probably isn't eating right and has too much you know, carbohydrate and too much stimulant and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And because of the intellect, because of the energy levels, they're going to get into trouble. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's and so it's um, man, what what a tragedy because I think you know, in my opinion.